Mickey. Thank you, Kim. I'd like to um, thank Bob and the committee for asking me to speak. This is the first time I've ever been here, and it's absolutely beautiful. I'd also like to thank Bob for a little bit of advice he gave me before I came up here. He said, keep your clothes on and don't embarrass our group. <laughs> I said, okay. I'd like to be able to tell you that I started my day out today with um, meditation and prayer, but that's not what happened. I got a wake-up call on the telephone, and I was trying to turn the daggone thing off, and I hit the 911 button. And the 911 operator comes on and she says, 911, what's your emergency? And I should have said, I'm speaking. <laughs> but I went into this big, long explanation how I accidentally hit the 911 button. Um, it was a long time after I got into this program before I believed that this was a disease. And um, I'd, I'd been sober in AA for a couple of years. I'd had a relapse. I had not worked a fourth step. And I gave my first lead. And when I did that, and I brought everything together, as we kind of do in our fourth step, it dawned on me that this was a disease. And going back through my childhood, uh, to me, it was tangible proof, you know, because I used to sit around thinking, well, maybe you've got a disease, but I'm just morally deficient, and, and I'm a monster, and there's just something really terribly wrong with me emotionally. Um, I now know that, that alcoholism is a disease, and I have it, and it's nobody's fault that I have it. Um, like Larry said last night, uh, I, I drank. <laughs> um, I grew up in a home where uh, my father was an alcoholic. He was a very abusive and violent drunk. I have two sisters. Um, my sobriety date is October 20th, 1991. Uh, my home group is um, the Coal River Group in St. Albans, West Virginia. And, um, but anyway, uh, like I said, I grew up in this alcoholic home, and it was full of chaos and mayhem constantly. Um, we never knew what to expect. We walked on eggshells. Uh, I can remember as a very young child saying to myself uh, when my parents were still together, you know, I'm never going to drink. I am never going to marry anybody who drinks, and I am never going to do my kids that way. And I did all three. Um, as my father's alcoholism progressed, he got more and more violent. One of his favorite things to do was to come home and load the guns. And it was, it was very terrorizing for eight- and nine-year-old kids. And um, so anyway, uh, as his disease progressed, he... Um, he shot himself in the head with a shotgun, didn't kill him. Uh, it wasn't long after that that my mother decided it was too dangerous for us to stay there with him any longer, and my parents divorced. At the time, she wasn't financially able to take care of the three of us girls, uh, so we got kind of split up, and my little sister stayed with her, my older sister went with an aunt, and I got to go live with Dad. And that year that I lived with my father and his mother was a very long one. Uh, he no longer had all of us to take his rantings and his drunken rages out on. He had me and my grandmother, and we got it all. Uh, as a young child, I would pray. I would pray that when my dad would stop drinking, I would pray that we could be a so-called normal family and that things would get better, and they never did. 
and I, I lost faith in God. I thought, well, you know, my prayers don't get answered anyway. Why bother? Um, I had an earlier experience with, uh, with religion when I stayed with my father and my grandmother. She took me uh, to a holy roller church where I was expected to sit at the door with a pan of water and wash feet, old feet. And I didn't like it. And I'm so grateful that the only requirement for membership here is a desire to stop drinking because I ain't washing no feet. <laughs> my belief in a higher power has changed today. I have a very close relationship with God and my understanding. The theme of this um, weekend was a way out. And for me, it's been a spiritual way out. Um, recovery has not come easy for me. Um, I know some people come in and they get sober and everything seems to get better fairly quickly and, and they seem to get into the steps and work in the program and, and that's just not the way I did it. Uh, the, I, um, I have to tell you about my first drink. I was 12 years old and I had already moved back with my mother after living with my father for a year. And all those times I said I was never going to be like my dad, I was never going to drink. Um, I went down to a girlfriend's house and she went in the house and, and she brought out a pint of vodka. There were three boys there and she and I. And up until that point I, uh, I never felt okay about myself. I never felt okay about my family. There were always these, always these big secrets. I couldn't bring my friends home because then I would have to explain that hole in the wall. I never felt okay about my body, the way I looked. Uh, we, didn't, we didn't have a lot of money and I didn't feel okay about that. And I just didn't feel okay. And um, my friend, she was, she was more developed than me at the time and still is. And, um, and I really didn't feel okay about that either. And uh, so anyway, she brought this vodka out and they passed it around and they were drinking it straight, no chaser, and they were making these god-awful faces, and, and I thought to myself, I know how to do this. I've seen this done, because my dad, you know, he drank straight out of the bottle. He didn't drink mixed drinks. And I turned that bottle up, and I, I chugged quite a bit of it. Now, for the next 20 minutes before I passed out, <laughs> I felt okay, you know. As a matter of fact, I was it. Uh, it, it no longer mattered the size of my breast. It no longer mattered how much money I had. I just felt good. And um, then I passed out. I pissed my pants and I woke up with a hickey on my neck. <laughs> my girlfriend's mother called an ambulance, but they wouldn't come and get me. They said I had to sleep it off. Uh, I drank alcoholically thereever after, and mostly it was just on the weekends for several years. You know, we'd do the Boone's Farm wine thing, and um, it wasn't very long before I was introduced to um, marijuana. And um, during high school, I was also introduced to a lot of other drugs. And let me tell you, when I ingested alcohol, uh, my inhibitions went wild. You know, Bob wasn't kidding about taking off the clothes. I had, I had this real problem. Anytime I was drinking alcohol, and I was anywhere near water, and it didn't matter if it was a lake or a river or a public swimming pool. You know, the clothes came off, and and in I went. And what's so ironic about that is I would have never have done that sober, you know, because I was really ashamed of my body. 
But uh, I'm not ashamed of my body anymore, however. All those girls that I was um, so jealous of that were well endowed, we're between 30 and 40 now, and theirs are hanging down to their knees, and mine are still perky. <laughs> It's all in your perspective. So, I, uh, I made a career in high school of, of um, drinking and doing other things as often as I could. Um, you know, they, they talk about a thing called date rape now. And back then, I had never heard that term. And this is where my self-esteem was. I drank a fifth of uh, whiskey one night, was with some friends, and one of the fellows was fairly large, and he forced himself on me that night. And for many, many years, I believed that not only was that my fault, but that I deserved it because I had drank so much. I don't feel that way today. And I know that I'm not the only one that has had experience with that. Um, the women in the bars, drunk. Uh, the, the men with the women in the bars, you know, they're an easy target. And that's just the way it goes when you're drink, drinking the, uh, the degradation and uh, the things that you wouldn't normally do. Alcohol took me places I didn't really want to go. I, um, I went to Marshall University, to college. Uh, I had been dating a fellow in high school that I, I was truly in love with, and after we got to college, he, he left me for an older girl with a tattoo on her thigh. And I tell you what, my, my disease really took a nosedive then. Um, I, uh, I went absolutely hog wild. I'd stayed drunk or high on drugs constantly. I, I didn't even bother to withdraw from my classes at school. I just quit going and, and took the felling grade. Uh, it wasn't long after that, that that I met my husband. We were in one of my favorite bars in Huntington, um, uh, the one that I usually fell off the bar stool. They, they knew me that way. And, uh, and what's funny is it's just been a couple years ago that I found out that he saw me in, a bar, in that bar one night, and uh, I had fallen off the bar stool, sprawled out all over the floor, and he said he looked down at me and he thought to himself, that's the woman for me. <laughs> Shows you how sick he is. Um, and our relationship was definitely sick. Uh, uh, we were engaged for a couple years. The main thing that we had in common was that we both liked to party. I, um, I began to develop some emotional problems during that time. And I, uh, I went to see some psychiatrists. I thought that, uh, you know, I, I would go to these sites. I'd get on a big drunk and, and eat a bunch of pills, and then I'd get real depressed, and I couldn't figure out why. And so I'd go to these psychiatrists, and I'd say, oh, my God, I've got PMS so bad. I just can't stand it. And they said, yeah, you really do. Here, take these pills. And then I went to another one, and I said, I've got PM, I've got, um, and I said, my husband, he's a son of a bitch. I just can't stand him. And they said, yes, he is. Here, take these pills. And I went to this one elderly gentleman, and I, God only knows what I told him. And he said, here, take these relaxation tapes home and listen to them. I never went back to see him again. <laughs> um, 
As my disease progressed, I became uh, more and more like my father was. When he drank, I became more and more violent and raging. As a child, I was not able to express my anger because it was too dangerous to do that. And um, the older I grew and the more freedom I got away at college and so forth, uh, the more that came out. I had friends that were afraid to call me in my dorm room. I had this thing about not getting my sleep. If I didn't get my sleep, I just would go completely berserk. I, I did several hundred dollars worth of damage to my dorm room that I had to pay for uh, just to be in a rage and, and destroying some property. My, um, I have to tell the story because Cecil came up from Charleston uh, I was I was a bitch, and um, one of my favorite things to do when I was drinking was slobber, and and I was real belligerent and obnoxious, one of those. And um, so anyway, my husband and I were at this big party thing outside up in Wark County, and I'd been skinny dipping in the river. I'd been drinking a bunch of whiskey, and I walk up to the party. I had my clothes on, and my husband was there, and his truck had hit this other guy's vehicle. Well, what I didn't know was that they had already exchanged insurance information and telephone numbers and so forth. And I just commenced to give this guy hell. I called him every name I knew and just acted like a total idiot. And he looked at me and he looked at my husband and he said, who is this bitch? <laughs> and my husband said, I don't know. <laughs> That's pretty bad. He wouldn't claim me. Um, he and I got married in, in February of 1981, which means next month we'll be married 15 years. That is also a true miracle. Uh, we had a very up and down marriage. Uh, he and I both continued to, to drink and drug on a regular basis. Uh, our relationship was almost nil. We went our separate ways. I had my friends. He had his. I did my thing. He did his. Um, my drinking was starting to cause me some problems at work at this point, but not a lot. Um, one day I showed up at work. I had on two different shoes. Um, I had to go home and change because I was supposed to meet the public that day. And uh, I remember going to a, an office party that uh, I worked for an insurance company in Charleston. And uh, uh, my boss's boss had a Christmas party. And I showed up with two bottles of wine. That was for myself, but they weren't cold yet. And I can't believe I went unprepared. And so I put those in the fridge, and I got someone else's wine. I drank their wine. Gertrude had some kind of white lightning. And then this other lady had something in a brown bottle, the kind you, like, flip over to the side and, and do that with. And... Um, so anyway, we got ready to leave, and I was so drunk and had made such an ass out of myself in front of all these people I worked with. Uh, my boss's boss insisted that my boss drive me home. Well, his wife followed in the station wagon, and there we are going home, and I refused to tell him where I lived. I wasn't through drinking yet. I told him I wanted to go to the El Dorado, a local bar in my hometown, and uh, and he said, no, you're too drunk. I said, I'm not telling you where I live. You take me there or just leave me here on the side of the road. I don't care. Now, this is my boss, you know. And so he took me to the El Dorado and dropped me off. But on the way, he hit this dog. 
this big Irish setter, and it killed it. And so here I am sitting in this barn. Him and his wife have already gone home in their little station wagon, you know, and, and I'm crying at this bar all by myself over this poor dog, you know, and, and my drinking had got to a point where it really didn't matter if I was sitting in a bar by myself drinking. Uh, during my, the last few years of my drinking, I did a lot of it, most of it at home. I isolated a lot. Uh, my husband and I um, had a son in 1985. Um, our marriage was really on the rocks at this time, and he, um, he partied with a vengeance while I was pregnant. By the grace of God, I, I didn't have to drink for the last six months of my pregnancy. Um, I did, however, my higher power was Tudor's biscuits. I gained 55 pounds, and... Um, but my husband, he uh, partied with a vengeance with the idea that when the baby came, we'd settle down and we'd be this nice little family. And it just didn't work out that way. When I had this little boy, I loved him very much. And I thought to myself, I I'm going to love him and I'm going to protect him and keep him from harm. And that didn't work out either. Um, it wasn't very long after he was born that I started drinking and drugging again. And I would get into these wells, I call it the black hole of self-pity. I was such a good victim. I was the best victim you'll ever meet. Um, my husband would, would sell drugs to try to pay the rent, and, um, and he'd be out all night, and, and I would have to take care of this baby, and I resented that. And uh, my drinking slowed down however for a while because it was really hard for me to change shitty diapers with a really bad hangover and my hangovers kept getting worse and worse I would get extremely ill and I would think well it's the bourbon and so I quit drinking brown liquor and I switched to vodka and then I tried wine for a while and but I always went back to vodka vodka was my favorite and I'll tell you why I loved it because you could shove down about six shots of it you know and not feel anything. And then it would like sneak up behind you, boom, and hit you right in the back of the head. And you'd be right where you wanted to be in oblivion. You know, that was right where I wanted to be. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, so anyway, but a after, the, after he was potty trained, then the drinking got picked back up. And um, I, uh, I took a lot of prescription drugs. I, um, I caused my mother a lot of grief uh, throughout the years. Um, when I was 14, I, I went to, I got kicked out of church basketball camp for drinking. Um, I, uh, I, I took some medic, I was drunk and I took some medication that I thought was one thing and it turned out to be pills for psychotics this girl had given me and I ended up in the hospital for that. And my mom worried about me a lot and I'm so grateful that this program has an amends step because I've made amends to my mother and um, the way that I do that is on a daily basis I treat her with the love and the respect that she deserves. Um, I had this little boy who did not sleep through the night for the first two years of his life and I had to be at work at 7.30 and like I said I had this thing about getting my sleep. and. Um, 
the past the, the last couple of years of my drinking and my drugging, uh, what happened was it quit working. It quit making me feel okay. No matter how much I drank, no matter how much I used, it just didn't work anymore. That's a very um, desperate place to be. I could no longer live with or without alcohol, and I didn't know what to do. I had no idea that I had a problem with it. I just thought I was miserable, that God had dealt me a bad hand, and I was doomed to live this miserable existence until I died, and that's the way it was. I, um, I really cared about my little boy, and, um, but when I didn't get my sleep, and I did my drinking, and I did my drugs, um, the rages came out, and I did to my son what my father did to me, and um, except for the physical abuse, I would um, beat walls, break toys, and he was just three, he, you know. Um, the night that I reached my bottom, my husband wasn't home, and uh, my, I was home alone with my little boy. And, um, well, I have to back up a little bit. My husband's drinking had started getting on my nerves. <laughs> and, because he did stupid stuff. He did stuff like he would come home, and, and we only had one toilet. And we lived in a mobile home, and... And he would be so drunk, he would have to hang onto the shower curtain while I used the bathroom with the other hand. And, and he fell on the toilet and broke the toilet one night. And I got up the next morning, I had to go to the bathroom, there was no toilet. So he did stuff like that that just really pissed me off. Also during this time, I had a friend, her name was Terry. She and I drank and drugged a lot together. As a matter of fact, there was a time when I was so worried about her that I drove from Huntington to Charleston to speak with her parents about her problem. I was afraid that the next time I saw her, uh, she would be in a casket. I was that afraid for her. She was really, really bad. Uh, this friend of mine, Terry, uh, got sober and clean uh, about 15, 12, 15 years ago. And she had moved away to Pittsburgh, and then she moved back to Charleston. And we spent a little bit of time together, not much. We'd go to lunch, and she would have her Dr. Pepper and her sandwich, and I would have my Budweiser's and whatever combination of pills I decided to pick out of my pack that day. And I noticed something about Terry. Uh, her eyes were bright and shiny. She always had a smile on her face. And, you know, and it wasn't that everything in her life was golden and perfect either, you know. It's, she, she had a peace about her. And I can remember when I was a little girl through all those tumultuous times when I, I didn't feel okay and there was all this chaos going on at home that uh, in my mind, you know, I just wanted a little bit of peace of mind. And that's, that's what I call serenity. I call it peace of mind. And um, so anyway, I noticed this about her and... The only thing that she told me, because um, I asked her about it, was that she got, went to meetings and she didn't drink or drug anymore. And I'm like, okay, well, that's fine. And, uh, but the night that I reached my bottom, my husband wasn't home. Uh, I was home alone with my little boy. 
and I had drank what beer was left in the refrigerator. I had started eating Valiums, and like I said, during the uh, towards the end, they didn't work. And uh, my little boy wouldn't go to bed. He wouldn't go to sleep. And the more Valiums I took, the wilder I got. The more I needed to calm down, the, the, the more pills I took, and the wilder, more rageful I got. And I ended up breaking the door facing off of his room. He was three and a half years old knocking the pictures off of his wall, smashing his toys, just like a, a whirlwind. And I looked over in the corner of the room, and this three-and-a-half-year-old little boy, who I was supposed to love and protect, was crouched down in the corner with fear and terror in his eyes. And I knew what that felt like. And we hear a lot of times about that moment of clarity. I have one of those. And I thank God for it. And another thing that I've learned in AA is that out of everything that was seemingly bad that's happened in my life, that I can look back on it now and see something that was good that came out of it. And the good thing about that was that I'm, I knew how that little boy felt. And I didn't want to see that look on his face anymore. So I called my friend Terry, and I asked her, did she think she could take me to one of those meetings? And she said she would. The next morning I got up, I, I took some kind of um, medication. I don't even know what it was. See, towards the end, you know, not only did it not work, but I didn't even drink to get drunk anymore. I just drank to make it through the day. And she came and got me that evening, and she took me to a meeting. She took me to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting at the Serenity Club in Dunbar, West Virginia. And she told me I wouldn't have to say anything, and I said, okay. And they went around the room, and that what I remember about that first meeting was that there were some older men there about my father's age. And I wondered um, to myself, wonder, wonder why my dad never did this. And it got around to me, and they asked me, uh, um, did I want to say something? And Terry said, oh, I told her she wouldn't have to say anything, and I said, that's okay. I said, uh, I don't know what's wrong with me, but I need help really, really bad. And um, so anyway, my father had already passed away at this time. He died when he was 51 years old. He hadn't had a drink for the last six years of his life, uh, simply because every time he would ingest alcohol, he would bleed from his rectum and his stomach and his lungs. He, um, he died of... Uh, complications of this disease. Uh, not long after he died, um, my son was 18 months old, and um, I was having all these terrible migraine headaches. And I would go to the doctor, and they would give me these narcotics, and finally, I guess, they got tired of giving me the narcotics, and they said, we're going to do this CAT scan. I said, okay. So they called me at work, and they said, um, we found a brain tumor on your CAT scan. And I said, oh, my God. I thought they were kidding, you know, but they weren't, and they said, you have to go see this neurosurgeon. So I, like, kind of freaked out and wrote my will and stuff, and, and of course, it was a prime opportunity to get some major medication, do some major drinking, and um, so I went to this neurosurgeon. Uh, I, I had to wait, like, five days before I could get in to see the neurosurgeon, and during those five days, I get to thinking, 
You know how we do? <laughs> I got to thinking, that's what's wrong with me. All this time, you know, that I've been such a bitch, it's because I've had this brain tumor. It's this pressure on my brain. And they're going to go in and cut it out, and I'm going to be just fine. And won't that be me? And won't all them sons of bitches that did me wrong feel bad? So my husband goes down to the local bar and, and tells all of his butt, drinking buddies that his wife has this brain tumor. And, and uh, so when I go back to five days later, they told me that uh, uh, there had been some sort of mistake, <laughs> that it wasn't there anymore. You know, and any normal person would have just been elated. But I was bummed because... How were they going to fix me then? And if, that, if I didn't have a brain tumor, then that wasn't what was wrong with me. Then what the hell was wrong with me? I didn't have a clue. So anyway, he forgot to tell his buddies that it was gone. And they're calling me months later. Pony, how you So anyway... After my first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, uh, my friend Terry called me the next night. She said, I'm going to take you to another meeting. I'm like, oh, okay. And uh, I didn't drink anything that day. Uh, she took me to another meeting. And on the third day, she called me. She said, I'm going to take you to another meeting. I said, another one? See, and I still I didn't, did not have the concept that this whole thing about recovery or getting better or feeling better had to do with not drinking. And so she took me to my third meeting. By this time, I um, started to experience some really severe withdrawal symptoms. I was out in my front yard pacing up and down like a caged tiger with sweat torn off my back. So it was suggested to me... This is the end of side one. Please stop your machine and turn the tape over. ...treatment center, and I did that. And I talked to uh, um, three or four nurses, and, and they advised that, that it would be the best thing for me to do to go into detox. And I did that. I told them I would go in for seven days, that I was not going to leave my child or my job for any longer than that. So after seven days, against their wishes, I, I was discharged. Uh, by that time, I wanted, I wanted to try this thing. You know, I, I was willing. Uh, because I didn't ever want to see the look on my little boy's face again. Uh, while I was in treatment, you know, you have to wait three days to make a phone call, and I called my husband to see how my little boy was doing, and he told me, he said, you really picked a bad time to do this. And I'm like, oh, God, you know, am I doing the right thing? But uh, uh, no doubt that was the best thing I ever did for Patty in, in my life. Um, my husband continued to drink and drug on a daily basis. Uh, it was suggested that I not stay in that marriage or that situation, but I didn't take that suggestion. It was extremely difficult, and I wouldn't recommend it to anybody else. There was uh, constantly beer in our refrigerator, uh, liquor in our garage, and, and marijuana or whatever substances uh, in the closet. Um, I made every meeting that I possibly could. Sometimes I came home and, um, and, and I felt really good after a meeting and, or I'd go to like a convention or something and, and I'd bring home and I'd, I'd want him to have this so bad. 
And I'd pop in a speaker tape, you know, and I'd say, oh, you got to listen to this, you got to listen to this, you know. And he'd have a joint in one hand and a Budweiser in the other. He didn't get it. <laughs> but I tried. Um, after uh, uh, being sober for a couple of years, um, I had worked the first three steps decided that I had never murdered anybody or stolen large amounts of money. I didn't need to do the rest. <clears throat> and um, my mother got breast cancer. My mother and I are very, very close. Um, I went to a lot of meetings. I talked to my sponsor. But I did not have the foundation in recovery to deal with that situation. Fear took over in my life. My prayers changed from, God, please help keep me sober today, to, God, please help my mother. Um, she went with me to pick up my two-year chip, and um, the next day I met her for lunch, and she said, My God, Patty Ann, you don't belong there with those people. You are having an identity crisis with your dead father. And I'm like, Okay, Mom. I said, If you're ever in any doubt about what I'm doing, just try to remember this. I'm not putting mind and mood altering substances in my body. I'm not killing myself with alcohol today. I have a relationship with the God of my understanding. And I'm really doing better than I ever have before in my life. I said, so just try to remember that whenever you have a problem with this. It taught me a lot about um, acceptance, you know, because we always want that acceptance, not only from our peers, but especially our parents. And after that, I, I no longer needed that. I knew I was doing the right thing for me. Um, at, when she got this cancer, I, um, I ended up going to the doctor and relapsing on medication. I didn't get high, but I took enough that it separated me from my higher power. And I believe that that, that along with the self-centeredness is the, is the core of our disease, the self-centeredness self-centeredness and the separation from any kind of a higher power because when we're in charge we're our higher power and I was in charge or so I thought I uh, went to a Houdow meeting at the Serenity Club and my sponsor was there and I had been taking this medication for about a week and I told her what I had been doing and just listening to myself saying well you know I'll quit taking I need them to help me sleep and I'll quit taking them after uh, the radiation, or maybe after the surgery, or maybe after the chemo. And then it kind of like, she didn't have to say a word, and the question went through my own mind, when is going to be a good time to get sober again? When is it going to be a good time to let a loving and caring God into my life again? And I went home and I flushed him down the toilet and I started over. That was October 20th of 1991. I worked the first three steps again, and I, I, I was ready to, I was willing <laughs> to work the fourth step. I know Cecil, he kept asking me, you know, have you, have you done your fourth step yet? And I, I said, well, I'm thinking about it. And he said, don't think about it, do it. And um, so anyway, at this time, I had, uh, the company that I worked for went bankrupt, and I was no longer working outside the home. And I got a letter from the Red Cross in the mail addressed to my husband, and I opened it up and read it. And what it said was that he had um, 
the hepatitis B core antibody. And I thought, oh my God, he has drank so much that he's damaged his liver. Oh my God. And I called him at work and I told him what this letter said. And then I called the doctor and I made an appointment. And then I made a few more phone calls and I found out how you get that. And uh, the main two ways that you get the hepatitis B core antibody is through IV drug use, which he was not an IV drug user, and through sex. And so it dawned on me how he had come about getting this. And I called him at work and I told him, when you get home, we need to talk. He came home that night around 9 o'clock and um, he, be he began to confess his infidelities throughout our marriage. Now, I had done a lot of things when I was drinking, but I had never cheated on my husband. See, I think that when we got married, fidelity meant everything to me and respect didn't mean anything and, and um, you know, the way that I treated him and, and belittled him and berated him, that was okay as long as I didn't cheat on him. You know, that was real important to me. Um, however, it wasn't as important to him and that's where his disease took him. And as he began to confess these infidelities, one right after the other, um, I freaked. You know, I, I totally freaked. I, um, I didn't call my sponsor because what I really wanted to do was drink. So I headed towards her house and I thought, well, I'll go to her house, but if she's not home, I'm drinking. And thank God she was home. She took me in. It was midnight. Um, I was there till about 4 a.m. I came home and um, I was really, I was kind of in shock and, and real devastated and real hurt, and real angry. And I told my husband, I said, you know, you can go to treatment, you can go live with your mother, or you can go straight to hell and I don't care which. <laughs> so he picked up the telephone and he called the treatment center. Then he called his job and told him he wouldn't be back for 28 days. I drove him down there. Uh, you know, for the first three days, you can't make those phone calls. Man, I was pissed because, see, I wanted to kill him, and I couldn't even call him. So I called a lawyer in the program, and I said, I want a divorce. You know, I just, I got to have a divorce. And he said, Patty, he said, I can do a divorce for you. He said, but I don't think that's the answer. He said, I think God's the answer. And I said, oh, God, it's just like a typical man, you know, because I was just still really pissed. However, that did give me a little while to think about it. And what I thought about was, since I had been here, the miracles that I had seen in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I thought about our son. And I thought about where my disease had taken me. And I thought, maybe there's one more miracle. So after he got up, well, while he was in there, the first phone call that I talked to him, he said that um, he'd forgotten his toothbrush. And I had already thrown it in the trash, see, and, and washed all the sheets and scrubbed everything down with bleach. And I just knew he'd given me AIDS. I just knew he had, you know. And, and uh, for a brief second, I almost went out and got that toothbrush and scrubbed the toilet with it and took it to him, but I didn't. I didn't. Um, 
I later came to wish that I had done that and, instead of what I ended up doing, however. Um, what that situation did for me was that it forced me to work a fourth step. I was in so much pain that I knew that if I did not continue on with my recovery that I would drink. And I didn't want to drink. So I worked a fourth and fifth step and I moved on to the sixth. And it was one of my favorite steps. I, uh, I had so many defects of character. I mean, a really huge long list. And I still felt really, really bad about myself. Um, like I was some kind of a monster. And uh, my, uh, my sponsor worked through those uh, character defects with me and helped me sort them out. And I read the big book. And what I found was that I could not remove those character defects, that I had to ask a higher power to do that for me and be willing to let him. And it was hard for me to do because on the one hand, I wanted rid of them so bad, and on the other hand, I, I would think, though, I might need those. I might need to be real manipulative one of these days, you know. Or, you know, I might need this this anger or, you know, this self-righteousness. I might need to be judgmental to protect myself, and it, and it was a struggle for me. But when I was finally able to do that, it, it, it was a turning point in my recovery. Um, I can remember before I did those steps, uh, calling Terry, my friend, and telling her, I, I, I'm going to drink, and it's like... Four o'clock, and there's supposed to be a 5.30 meeting, but they no longer have this 5.30 meeting. And uh, she says, well, you'll, there's an 8 o'clock meeting. I said, I can't wait till 8 o'clock. Uh, she said, okay, meet me down at the Serenity Club. She went down to the Serenity Club, and there's like a pool table there, and people play cards and stuff. And, and she gathered up all these people, and she brought them into the meeting room, and they had a meeting for me. And one more day, I didn't have to drink. Um, I continued on with the steps. Uh, I went through this period where I was so, in, I got sucked down in that victim hole, that black hole of victimization when that happened with my husband. And um, I went to some ACOA meetings, I went to some group therapy, I tried everything. I, I moved on with the steps. Um, and then I resorted to something that I had done previous me previously in my drinking days. You know, when I was younger, I would uh, just drink and, and, and eat acid, and I would think to myself, I'll show you, you know, I'll show you. And I would think about my dad, you know, I'll show you. And ha he never even knew I did any of that stuff. You know, I was only harming and, and um, degrading myself. Um, when the fellow left me for the girl with the tattoo on her thigh, you know, I did the same thing, I'll show you, and I, I picked a guy out, well, actually it was his uh, best friend, and I showed him, and uh, it was a, a disgusting experience, and I, uh, I'm not proud of it, but I didn't learn from it. Another thing Alcoholics Anonymous does for me today is it allows me to learn my lessons if I'm willing. And there's lots, lots of lessons each day. I, uh, I resorted to, to revenge on my husband. He had been sober and clean for over three years. 
He had tried with all of his might to make amends to me, and I just, I just couldn't handle it. Uh, what this experience taught me was the true meaning of to thine own self be true. You know, he would say to me after this happened, Patty, I never want to do that to myself again. He was referring to the infidelity. And I didn't understand what he meant by that. I thought to yourself, hell, you know, what about what you did to me? And I understand what he means by that now. Because I don't ever want to do that to myself again. And he's here with me this weekend. I'm so very proud of him. Uh, it wasn't but a couple of weeks ago. I'd gone to my home group. It's on Tuesday night. And, and I went home and just out of the blue, I didn't even think about it. I looked up at him and I said, I'm so grateful to have you in my life today. And that's a miracle because I meant it. It was from the heart. And I am so grateful to have all of you in my life today. And there's uh, something that I want to share with you in closing. It's part of my personal meditation. <clears throat> it says, I asked God to take away my pride, and God said no. He said it was not for him to take away, but for me to give up. I asked God to, take, to make my handicapped child whole, and God said no. He said his spirit is whole and his body is only temporary. I asked God to grant me patience, and God said no. He said that patience is a byproduct of tribulation. It is not granted, it is earned. I asked God to give me happiness, and God said no. He said he gives blessings. Happiness is up to me. I asked God to spare me pain, and God said no. He said suffering draws you apart from worldly cares and brings you closer to me. I asked God to make my spirit grow, and God said no. He said I must grow on my own, but he will prune me to make me fruitful. I asked God if he loved me, and God said yes. I asked God to help me love others as much as he loves me, and God said, ah, oh, finally you have the idea. Thank you very much.